Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. As we continue looking at the uh, series here where uh, Jesus is controversial as he is entering into Jerusalem. If we're looking at a time frame, you will uh, of course know that Christ was crucified on Friday. And uh, so this is probably Wednesday, okay, so that we have our chronology correct. This is probably Wednesday of uh, the Lord's holy week here of uh, his death. And so when we look at this, Jesus has gone into the temple, he has cleansed the temple, he has uh, talked to them about what this means, and uh, he has then shown a parable uh, talking about the authority, and then he gives a parable of the wicked tenants in which he very clearly shows that the parable was about these people, that it was about the Jews, uh, the Jewish leadership rather, and how they had been given so much, and yet they had uh, rejected all of the prophets, and they would reject him, and they knew that he was talking about them. And so they realized this, and that brought them to this place here. What One of the things that you see in this passage is you see that uh, love will bring people together, and so will hatred. Hatred will bring people together that are unlikely to come together. Uh, it, will, it, it would be sort of like if, you know, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, they can't get along, right? Uh, but, you know, if there was a terror strike, they, they actually might, I didn't say they would, they might actually get together that put aside their differences for a common goal, uh, a, a common hatred against uh, the terrorist. Love will also bring people together, of course, but that's not the only thing. Here we actually are going to see this very thing happen. You're going to see the Herodians and the Jewish leadership come together. The Herodians were those Jews that believed that Herod and his uh, and all of those that were with Herod had the right to rule over Jerusalem and the Jews, and they they wanted to assimilate. They wanted to be part of it. If you read the Gospel of Mark, I believe Mark is the one that records this aspect of the the Herodians helping and and uh, being involved in this. Now, Luke mentions primarily the scribes and the chief priests. And so these went along with the Herodians. And uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't want anything to do with Rome, really. They were against Rome. And so you have these two groups, and they're gathering together for the single purpose of hating Jesus and getting rid of Him. And so what we are going to see this morning is the theme. And follow the theme. When you read this passage, you may have thought, oh boy, all he's going to talk about is how we have to pay our taxes. That's all he's going to, he's going to make sure you pay your taxes. Don't cheat on your taxes. Make sure you report everything to your taxes. All right. That's not the main point of this passage. So you can feel relieved now. I mean, you are supposed to pay your taxes, but that's not the main point. 
So what we're going to see, and I didn't want to put too much into this, uh, into the theme, because I wanted you to, to see it unpackaged, that followers of Christ must seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is what this is all about. Let's, let's look at it and kind of unpack it here. First of all, we see Jesus' enemies' intentions. We see what their intentions were, looking at verse 19 and 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So here we have this reaction. To the parable. Jesus tells this parable, and instead of submitting and instead of repenting at the teaching of Jesus, they dig their heels in. They say, we, we actually hate Jesus even more. So the scribes, Pharisees, the Herodians, they, they desired to take Jesus out. Like I said, they knew this parable was about them. But they didn't do it outwardly because they feared the people. They they knew that they had to somehow get the people on their side. Otherwise, they were going to lose face. They were going to lose uh, they were going to lose clout with the, the people. They were the leaders, and so somehow they had to figure out some way of doing this. But notice the contrast if you will, between Jesus and the people, the, the, the leaders here. The leaders feared the people. That's why they wouldn't act. That's why they wouldn't do something. Jesus, however, does not fear the people at all. As a matter of fact, he does not fear the leaders, and you're going to see them recognize that later on in this passage. Jesus does not fear the the leadership. He doesn't fear the people. Jesus only fears, if I can put it that way, he only fears God. He only follows his Father. If If we're going to put it this way, we want to understand point one on your outline in the back would be to fear God alone, not man. Fear God alone, not man. We, we need to be like Jesus, where Jesus speaks the parable. He speaks the parable. He speaks the truth. He speaks it lovingly. He speaks it kindly. What happens when he tells them the truth? Do they say, oh, you know, you're Jesus. You have done this the perfect way. We repent. No, Jesus told them the truth and they hated him even more. So just because we don't fear man, just because we fear God, does not mean that people are going to be on our side. So we need to be careful to fear God, to speak the truth. In a culture today that has its own religion, its own doctrine, as believers in Christ and followers of Christ, we must not fear man. Jumping back to the religious leaders, notice what they do. In verse 20, so they, they watched him, they watched Jesus, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something that he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Here they sent spies. This word literally means, Bach explains, that these were hired to lie in wait. This is picturing someone who was lurking about, just waiting for a chance to destroy. This is what they were doing to Jesus. They weren't interested in what Jesus was doing. They were seeking to capture Him. Capturing Him in His words. The word police. They were out. 
They were trying to get him in something that would be compromising. And here, it was to get his teachings. And notice that the point of this was not so that they could prove themselves to be right, but it was so that they could deliver him over to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And at this time, you will notice and you will know that the governor was Pontius Pilate. Now, eventually, Jesus would make his way there, but their plot and their plan was to have Rome do their dirty work. They sent spies to do this, to capture him, and then they wanted Rome to take care of Jesus. So that way, they wouldn't have any blood on their hands. They would be sitting back, and they would be uh, able to go on with their life of uh, having people looking at them with greatly, with great praise. Remember, that's how they, these folks were. That's what they wanted. They wanted the praise. They wanted the glory. They wanted the money. They wanted the people to look at them. That's what it was about. It wasn't about God. It was about them. And so here they pretend to be sincere and they desire to deliver Jesus up. But they were fearful of the people, so they sent these spies, these scoundrels, trying to rid the world of Jesus. Well, looking at verses 21 and 23, we see Jesus' enemies. See Jesus' enemies' trap. What were they going to do? How could they get Jesus? They had to figure this out. They had to be conniving. They had already tried a couple of ways. They had already asked him certain questions. They asked him about his authority. They, they had done all sorts of things. So how were they going to be able to actually trap him? First of all comes the flattery. Notice how they, they try to tee up Jesus. Tee it up so that they could hit, hit a long drive here. They asked him, teacher, these are the, the spies, teacher, which is a very respectable way uh, of, of speaking, trying to get him. And they said, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. First of all comes the flattery. Uh, now, R. Kent Hughes notes that flattery is the reverse mere image of gossip. Gossip involves saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. And so here we see these people saying all of these things about Jesus that behind Jesus' back, they were saying we need to get rid of Him. He is destroying our lives. He is tearing everything down. But to their face, oh, we know that you show no partiality. We know that, that you speak and teach rightly. Now let's note a few of these things that they say. First of all, they says, Teacher, that shows the authority and influence that Jesus has. And what is He teaching? How does He teach? They say, first of all, that you teach rightly. Uh, this comes from a word. This word rightly comes from the word orthos. Have you ever heard of an orthodontist? What does an orthodontist do? He sets your teeth straight. Right? That's what orthos means. It means to set straight. So that's what they're saying here. That we know that you teach in a straight way. That you teach in a way that sets... The, it, the doctrine doesn't go to the left. It doesn't go to the right. If it's crooked a little bit, you straighten it out. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. 
before we go on, one of the interesting things is they say all of these things with flattery and trying to, uh, to twist Jesus up, but in actuality, they're speaking the truth. And Jesus is going to show everything that He says is going to verify these very things. He says you don't show partiality. This is most likely what they're saying is you're not afraid to stand up to the, to, to the Jewish leadership. You're not afraid of the people. You're not afraid of the leaders. You're not afraid of Rome. You're not afraid of anyone. You don't show partiality. You just get up there and you speak the truth. They also said that you teach the way of God. The way, of course, the early Christians were known as the way. But in Old Testament times, the, to the, the ways in which they were to follow God were that the way that they were to walk, such as Psalm 27.11, Teach me your way, O Lord. Over and over you see that in the Old Testament. The way of God. And so Jesus will hear there saying, We recognize that you teach in the Old Testament. You teach the way that we are supposed to live. You teach the right way that we are supposed to go before. For God. So they flatter him, though it doesn't work, of course. So here's the question. Here's the question that they ask him Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, before we deal with the question, I want you to note in verse 23, we're going to come right back to the question, but note in verse 23 what happens. But he perceived their craftiness. And then he answers. Their craftiness, he, he understands. He sees right through it. The word craftiness has this idea of trickery, of being cunning. And this should really show us something about God, shouldn't it? This should show us that our Lord is all-knowing. That we might be able to fool a lot of people. We might be able to put on uh, all kinds of masks and trick people into thinking that we're something not but the Lord always sees. And that's point number two on your outline. We need to perceive that God is not deceived. We need to perceive that God's not per deceived at all. He sees right through everything. He knows the truth. He knows who we truly are. That's why it says the Lord looks on the heart. Hebrews 4.13, you could jot that reference down. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So we might be able to fool people, but we can't fool God. We can't fool God. We can't fool God ever. He always sees. He always knows. Now, the, the good thing, of course, is that the Lord forgives us. He forgives us of our hypocrisy. He forgives us of our misgivings, of, of our sin. He forgives all of these things. But to go on and pretend that they're not there doesn't deal with the issue. But just going back, Jesus sees right through this. He sees through the flattery. He knows exactly what's going on here. He knows that they have been after Him. And so back to the question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And in other words, the word lawful here is, is it in accordance with God's law? 
According to God's law, can we do this? According to God's law, is this right thing to do? To give tribute to Caesar. Now, when he says give tribute, he's not speaking of having a dinner and speaking well of Caesar. Okay? He's not talking about giving some kind of a tribute like that. He, it, the, the tribute was a tax. As a matter of fact, it was a poll tax. And the poll tax was not like the, all of the other taxes. You paid taxes in Rome. Matter of fact, taxation was a huge issue back then. Um, uh, in Jesus's, as he was growing up, there was a major rebellion about this. And later on, when Rome, uh, with the fall of Rome there, or the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, from 66 to 70, that was all started over taxation. And uh, these great rebellions, the zealots, uh, started during the time of Jesus' early life because of the rebellion of going against Rome. And so this was an ongoing thing. Uh, You were taxed on everything. You were taxed on your property. You were taxed on uh, the things that you bought. You were taxed on your income. You were taxed on, on everything. Okay, You guys can sympathize. And so they were taxed on everything. Well, once a year, there was a poll tax. And a poll tax was not where, uh, you know, traveling, they, they had those as well. You know, you're traveling. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've traveled somewhere and you pull up and there's a toll and you have to pay the toll to go on this road or whatever. But that wasn't what it, this was either. This was a poll tax and it was a tribute to Caesar. Every year you had to pay, every adult male and woman had to pay a denarius, which was equal to one day's worth of work. Okay, And you paid this as a tribute to Caesar, and the purpose of this tribute was simply because you were alive, right? Are you alive? Then you owe the tax. That, that, so I'm getting, I'm getting taxed for breathing, right? That, that's really what's going on. So you can imagine after all of those taxes, they, they hate this. Now, they're the, the question of this was not because of their hatred of the tax. Their, their question was so that they could get Rome on their side. This was a gotcha question. See, any way that he would answer this, he would quote-unquote paint himself into a corner. If he said no, that it's not lawful, then they would, the Herodians, they would, all right, go. They would be unleashed and they would run to Pilate and they would accuse Jesus of being an insurrectionist. And and Rome would then have to execute him because Rome was very tolerant of religion so long as it didn't interfere with their politics. As long as Caesar was God, they didn't really care. So, if he said, yes, it was lawful, then the Jewish people would turn on him. Because, as I already mentioned, they hated taxes. They despised all these things that were going on. Jesus' answer, however, brings us really kind of to uh, the wisdom of Solomon. You remember Solomon? And remember the, the two women and they, had the, they each had a baby and one of the babies died. And then the, the woman whose baby died, she took the other baby. And then, and then they, uh, they both said, this is my baby. And so they ended up going before Solomon. And, 
Solomon says, well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll settle this. Bring me a sword and I'll cut the baby in half and give half to each. And the one whose baby had already died said, that sounds fair. And the other, the, the, the true mother said, no, absolutely not. Don't do that. And, she, and he says, well, you are the actual mother because a true mother would not want that to happen. And everybody marveled at the wisdom of Solomon. Well, here, here is one who is greater than Solomon. Here is Jesus who is, who is sharing forth the truth of what we are to be. This brings us to the, the third aspect. Jesus' enemies answered, and this is really the heart of the passage. This is the heart of the message. In verses 24 through 26, Jesus, first of all, gives a command. Look at what he says in verse 24. So you know the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Now, first of all, you see, he says, show me a denarius. Now, right there, that is in aspect, that is Jesus's gotcha question. Because here they are, they're saying, in their mind, it, it's unlawful to, to pay this tax. It's unlawful even to have this money because it has Caesar's image. And so he says, show me a denarius. So they, they pull out a denarius and they show it to him. You can see up on the screen right now, I, 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 sh- I put one in there. We're going to look at that in a, in a second as well as what it says. But this is what it That's Tiberius Caesar. And they, they pulled it out and they had it. See, it has his image on it. Uh, the question was, whose likeness and inscription does it have? The word likeness is a Greek word. You're going to recognize our English word from this. It has the Greek, it's the, the Greek word icon. You, we get the word icon. When you see a picture or a symbol of something, we will sometimes refer to it as iconic. The icon or the image. So if I show you a picture of the space needle, that is iconic saying Seattle. Or the cable cars, that's iconic for San Francisco. Or if I show you a picture of the guy jumping uh, to dunk the basketball with his legs spread, that's iconic of Michael Jordan and Nike. We, we see all of these things. And you can, you can go back through and you can think of icons from different decades, can't you? You can think back to the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And you can think of different famous people. And they're just iconic, so to speak. Their face their image. And so Jesus says, whose likeness is on this? So Jesus focuses on one side of the coin. This is key. So it has the portrait of Tiberius Caesar on it. You'll notice around the coin that it is abbreviated. I'm just going to read out the letters. It says T-I Caesar D-I-V-I-A-U-G-F-A-V G-V-S-T-V-S. It reads this. It says, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. That's what it means. So here you have an image of a, of, of a man and supposedly a god. 
You, you see the laurel wreath on his head? That is meant to indicate even his deity. So here you have Jews carrying around in their pocket a coin that has the image, the icon of someone who is referring to himself as a god. Do you think the Jews took kindly to that? They didn't. Actually, on the back, and I, don't, I didn't put a picture of this, but on the back side was his mother, Livia, and was portrayed as the incarnation of the goddess of priests. And along with her inscription said, High Priestess. So you can see this was not something that they would have looked highly upon. So the denarius was what every adult man or woman would pay to the Roman treasury. And so they had to be paid with this coin. You couldn't pay with someone else. Because the idea here was that the, the image, whoever was on the image, actually owned the coin. Okay, So the, you may have this in your pocket, but you don't actually own that coin. Tiberius Caesar owns that coin. So to pay tribute to him was to give him back what was already his. All right? To the Jews, they didn't have any images on their coins, especially not one that read divine Augustus. This to them would have been breaking the second commandment to not have any graven images. You can see this really would have been a normal thing. You look at our money, we have pictures of people on it all the time. Right? So it's a, it's a very common thing. It's not... Something that's unusual. But notice Jesus' answer. He says in verse 25, He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. See, He owns them. And to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar. The, the idea of rendering was to pay what was owed. Pay what was due to the person. And so, Jesus had given the right and lawful answer and avoided their trap. He, he said, give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar's. That's, that, there's no problem with that. And, but, but to God, the things that are, the, the things that are God. And, and so when we look at this, He in reality was saying, yes, go ahead, pay your taxes. Pay the poll tax. The wicked, yes, they, he recognizes the right by common grace, though they may be wicked, of secular leaders to rule for the good of mankind. They're supposed to rule for the good of mankind. Now, eventually, they find, they find out every single way to tax you, don't they? I, I've told you before that uh, in Maryland, they, there was a rain tax. Like, like you're taxing the rain, Okay, and and what it was was they they with satellite imaging they would they would measure the square footage of your parking lot if you were a business and how much rain fell on and would go into the sewer and that based on those calculations you would receive a bill for that tax they tax the rain okay so if they can find it they will tax it. Right? Now, Jesus said, listen, just give it to them because it's theirs. But he says 
also, we, we read this in Romans 3. I'm not going to go through this. Romans 13, 1-7, jot this down. 1 Peter 2, 13-17, he says, listen, you've got you to pay it. You've got to live within the rules of, of what the laws actually are. Okay, But he says, also we read, don't do things that are contrary to God's law. If they make laws that are contrary to what God's laws are, then we are to obey God. It's better to obey God than man, the apostles said. When they said, stop preaching. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Bow down, pray, don't pray, you know, eat this, don't eat this. All these things, they, they, they said, no, we're not going to do that because you see God actually owns the government. They, God is the one who is over. So we don't go against things that are contrary to God's revealed law. We also don't go against our Christian consciences. Okay? So as we, uh, and, and Christians can disagree. You do know that, right? Like it, it, it is okay to disagree on some things and still be friends, right? Uh, we can disagree on something. You can be very serious in your Christian walk about some things, and other people, it's not a big deal to them. And, and that's okay. Because Paul says, listen, in the end, you don't have to stand in judgment for that person, they're going to stand. And if they do it as unto the Lord, then they do it as unto the Lord. Let, let them do it. And so, so we, we see if, if something really goes against your conscience, then, then don't do it. Now, the second part of the meaning is the most important part. It's not necessarily even the part that they asked Jesus about. Because he says, render the Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Okay, I got that. But then Jesus goes a step farther and He says, and to God the things that are God's. Hmm. So I have to ask the question, what then is God's? Because we, we've got the part where we've got to pay our taxes. Alright, April 15th, pay the taxes. Alright? But what about giving the things that are to God's to God? Now, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at the parallel here. The image of the coin, you will recall, belongs to the image bearer. So the coin of Caesar Tiberius belongs to Caesar. So what is Jesus saying? That while the image of Tiberius is on the coin, it is the image of God that is on every person. Right? We are all made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. See, God has created us in His image. So we, we are God, made in God's image. Now, here's the thing. When they sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, our image became broken. And, and here's, this is to me the best understanding of it, that the image is still there. You still image God. All people image God. Okay, uh, Creativity, communication, um, love. Uh, but all of those things are marred, aren't they? 
we, we, don't, we communicate, but we always don't communicate properly. Uh, we create, but sometimes we create things that are evil. Um, there are all these aspects of God's how we image. God rules. Sometimes we rule in various aspects and offices, but we don't always rule perfectly like God does, having dominion. And so we, we are called to be like God. The best way to Im- illustrate this, I think, is um, anybody have a cell phone? Uh, the one with the flat screen? A smartphone. Anybody ever have one of those? Okay. Most people have those things now. I was getting out of my, my truck one day. This was last year. I was getting out of my truck one day, and I was so excited. I was so excited because, you know, I had that thing for probably like four years right? And, and I was going to try to keep this thing as long as possible, right? Because I just, I just wanted to do that. I, I didn't want to upgrade. I'm like, who cares? I just, I wanted to keep this thing as long as possible. And so, um, opened up the door, the phone fell out, landed on the ground, and I picked it up, and it was shattered. And I was like, man, I'm like, I've been trying so hard, now, the phone still worked, but it was shattered. And there were, there were some bad parts. Like, I would go to swipe up, and I'd get a piece of glass in my finger, right? And I thought, man, I wonder if I put one of those screen protector things over top of it. You know, my, my point is, it still worked, but it was broken. There, there were, you would get some pictures that would come up, and they're all squiggly. They're all kind of messed up. It, it, the image was there, but it was broken. And it, what it happened was it needed to be restored. It needed to be brought back. And so that's actually what becoming a believer is. Uh, becoming a believer is having God restoring that image. Uh, when we, we look at this, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 for a minute. Just to show you that this is, is indeed what is going on. God has taken us and He is restoring us. Colossians chapter 3, looking at verse 5, 5 through 10. Just going to read through here real, real quickly and you'll see. He says, Put to death the old way of saying that is mortify. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It says in verse 7, In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And here it is. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. You see, when you put off all of those things and you're putting on speaking the truth and worshiping God alone, when you put on contentment, when you put on righteous desires and all of these things, when you put on 
love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, when you put on all of these things, you are being renewed. You're restoring that broken image. You are restoring that image that God has created for you to be. After all, that's the goal of redemption. Romans 8.29. We like Romans 8.28. All things work together for good, right? But... Romans 8.29 tells us this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. The icon of His Son. He's conformed. That's what the goal is. He's predestined us. that He's going to take us from being the fallen Adam to being like Jesus, the second Adam. That's what redemption is. He's going to restore us. Ultimately, we're going to be resurrected in the resurrected bodies and we're going to be restored to be the way that we were supposed to be. So what is Jesus saying to us here? What is He saying when He says that the the image of Caesar, give it to Him and render to God what is God's? This is what He's saying. He's saying, what Paul would say in Romans 12, 1 and 2, point three, to yield yourself a living sacrifice to God. He's saying you need to yield yourself as a living sacrifice to God. After you give everything, you give the image to Caesar, you, the image is you. You're the coin. I'm the coin. I am to give myself to God as a living sacrifice. Not, a, not as a sacrifice to, to kill, but as a living sacrifice that daily I sacrifice myself for Him. That I, I, I become obedient to His will. Romans 12, 1-2 speaks of this. Now, I want you to note something here real quickly. Paul, and he frequently does this, he does this in the book of Ephesians and but in, in Romans, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, he lays out very precisely the doctrine of salvation. He gives us everything that we need to know about sin, about sacrifice, about uh, Christ and who He is, and, and about faith and justification by faith. He goes all the way through in chap- to the end of chapter 11 where he says that this is all done for the glory of God and nothing will separate you from the love of God. And then he says, okay, that was the teaching part. Now let's get to the practical part. Let's go from what the foundation is to the house. Let's, let's build upon that. Because God has done all of this for you, what should we respond like? And he says this in verses 1-2, to two, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. How, how should I live? How should I offer it? Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. How do we worship God? We worship Him by offering ourselves a living sacrifice. We give ourselves to Him simply for being alive, like the poll tax. 
Simply for being alive, we give it to Him. We are now spiritually alive to Him. So we give ourselves. There are lots of things. Paul does not say, Jesus does not say, hey, when you become a believer, when you become a follower of Me, no long, you won't have any of those desires. He says, put those desires to death. You have to struggle against it. And it is a struggle. I don't care who you are. It is a struggle. You have to say, no. You're you're like, I want to answer this phone and I want to yell at this person. No. You might want to turn on something and you say, no. You might want to be covetousness, uh, covetous about something. And you say, no. I mean, we can go on and on. You have to fight. You have to fight against it. And the, the easiest way of doing that is saying, listen, God, I'm, I'm, I'm yielding myself to you. Uh, I, I, I recently have, um, I, I just say this to myself, and it works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't work as well. I'm just telling you what I'm doing, okay? And, and that's why I said sometimes it doesn't work, right? You know, I'll have to do something and I just don't feel like doing it. And I'm like, Michael, you are his servant. He's not asking you to do this. He's telling you to do this. All right, all right, Lord, I'm going to go do this. Why am I going to go do this? Because I'm not my own. I'm, I'm his servant. I'm his servant. Sometimes I say no, and thankfully the master is kind and gracious, and he gives us forgiveness. And sometimes I say yes, and there is great joy, right? And so we, we, we have to yield ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. But you have to see what verse 2 says as well. He says, Don't, do not be conformed to this world, because the world will transform you. You know that. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So that by testing you may discern what the will of, the, uh, of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I don't think that's necessarily talking about, Lord, what do you want me to do 30 years from now? He's like, what do you want to do today? What is the Lord's will for you today? How are you supposed to think about this thing today? How are you supposed to respond to this person today? How can you discern what God's will is for you this moment It says, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. See, if you don't let the Word of God transform you, then the world is going to transform you. And if you don't think that there isn't a worldly, cosmic, groupthink, power, religion out there, you're sadly mistaken. This uh, past week was Al Moeller, if you know who he is, president of Southern Seminary uh, and Boyce College. My son goes to Boyce, great school if you're looking for a school for uh, people to go to, to learn the word and, and just to be around good people and solid preaching. Anyway, it was his 30th anniversary of being the president there. And um, he had a 
they had all kinds of different things going on. And so um, my son was, was there in the chapel when he was delivering his 30th message. And, and uh, so we, we tuned in to listen to it as well. And he preached on Romans 12, 1 to 2. And I thought, that's perfect because I'm preaching on Romans 12, 1 to 2. This is sermon prep, right? And so, so I listened. And he gave a phenomenal message. If you have time, go listen to it. It's on their website. Really good. And uh, he was talking about this, being conformed to the world and how the world will conform you. Okay? And this is the example that he gave. Um, I'm going to condense it, and it won't be nearly as eloquent. But for the last... 6,000 years, we'll just say 6,000 years, everybody has understood a basic sense of morality. It didn't matter where you were, if you were in Russia, if you were in France, there, was this, there, was, there were certain basic lines of morality. And one of which was marriage. Marriage was always a man and a woman. I mean, everybody knew that. Everybody understood that. And... And then this thing started coming up, this, this question of, well, what about gay marriage? And um, so he explained that there was a poll that was done in 2012. In 2012, 70% of people were against gay marriage and 30% were for it. Okay. Five years later, and these were the same people being polled. This wasn't like we took a poll in South Carolina, and then we took a poll in New York City. Okay? Those are not comparable. Okay? The same people doing the same research, five years later in 2017, those numbers switched. 70% of people approved, and 30% were against. How did that happen? In five years, there was enough influence through media, through books, through radio, through television, through Hollywood, through the president, through the Supreme Court, through all of these things to sway a basic, fundamental understanding of morality. In just five years. My point here has nothing really to do with that topic. It simply is to show you that if you don't think that you can be influenced by the world, you are sadly mistaken. The, the people that follow Christ, we, we, we don't change. We do, we don't, God doesn't change. That's one of His attributes. Right? God doesn't change. He he doesn't he's not he doesn't pivot. Oh, we're we're here. Oh, we got we gotta change, we gotta pivot. No, you don't pivot. You stay straight, you stay strong, and you follow him. You're rendering yourself to God every day. Every day that's what we want to do. Every day do you render yourself to God? Remember that's what it means. It is owed. So what happens in this passage? Verse 26, And they were not able, 
in the presence of the people to catch Him in what He said. As a matter of fact, they didn't catch Him like they thought. They were marveling at His answer, just like Solomon, only greater. And they became silent. They were going to have to find out a new way of getting Him. They were going to have to figure out a different way to catch, to catch Jesus and to put Him to death. So what about you? What about me? Are we seriously rendering ourselves to God? We are in the image of God. Are we giving ourselves back to Him? I mean, seriously, are we doing that? If we're a believer, we're not our own. You were bought with a price. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're still made in His image. James tells us this. Trust Christ today, and He indeed will save you. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are grateful for who you are. And Lord, I just want to pray that we as your people would render ourselves to you. Um, Lord, this is a daily thing. This isn't just one thing that we decide today. But it is a, it's a life that we live of daily rendering ourselves to you, yielding ourselves to you, Lord, as a living sacrifice. Um, here we are, Lord. Use us. Use us the, the way that you, that you desire. So Lord, I pray that you will help us to, to see the truth. Lord, help us to be good citizens here on earth, but help us to be great citizens of heaven, for that is where our home is. Paul tells us this, that our, our citizenship is in heaven. So help us, Lord, to see that uh, this world truly isn't our home. It is... It is just a temporary thing. And though we grieve the, the atrocities, the sin, the, the secular mindset of how depraved it is, though we grieve this, Lord, may we rejoice in You and knowing that we have the truth. Help us to, to submit daily to You, Lord, to, to give our lives, to be in Your Word not to check off a box that we did our devotions today, but to really take it and think and, and to help us to, to change, Lord, and uh, to change in a way that brings glory to You. Um, Lord, I just want to ask that You will help us. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that maybe they've been playing a game, putting on the mask, flattering You in some way, that, Lord, You will pierce their heart and help them to see, Lord, that they need to stop playing games and know that you see through things and that they will truly repent and trust in Christ today. Lord, I just pray that you will go before us now. Help us to be people who love you, worship you, and desire to show you honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. And now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who is and was and is to come, May His grace be upon you today. Amen. Lord bless you.